Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode number 906 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and today we have one of our quarterly anthology episodes. That means you get three stories today. And these stories are made possible by our supporters of the show on Patreon and at our website at the Extra Wicked level. Supporters get a fresh Extra Wicked tale every month and also access to Wicked Fairy Tales, one of our supporter-exclusive shows. We're going to kick off today's anthology episode with a story written by me. This story originally appeared in the Shadows at the Door anthology alongside some other great talented authors that you've heard on this show before, like Christopher Long, Mark Nixon, Caitlin Marceau, and another author who is in today's anthology episode, actually, K.B. Goddard. The beautiful hardcover edition of the Shadows at the Door anthology can be found at shadowsatthedoor.com. If you prefer Kindle, you can get one of those over at Amazon. And we do have an audiobook as well, narrated by Cynthia Lohman and me. The score in today's episode is the same version that you would hear if you pick up the audiobook version. And that was written by our good friends Kim Henninger and Sean Park. You can visit them at henningerparkmusic.com. That's H-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R-P-A-R-K-E-Music.com. And of course, Shadows of the Door, you can find at shadowsofthedoor.com. Now, without further ado, let's kick off our anthology episode and get wicked. A Little Light Gets In by Daniel Foytek. It shouldn't be so difficult to make a room completely dark. She could wait until night, but Karen's too excited now. She tries again, tugging harder on the heavy drapes to close the gap. Her efforts cause the accumulated decades of dust to explode into the stale air. She sneezes. The sliver of light is gone now, but she needs to be sure. She looks around carefully, waiting for her eyes to adjust, waiting to be certain it's completely dark. 
She stands listening to the sounds of the old house settle and to her own breathing. Nearly a minute goes by. Satisfied, she presses the button on the side of her cell phone and uses its bright screen to find her way back to the table where the heavy projector sits. Everything looks good. Film loaded properly, latches closed, cord plugged in. Karen lets out a breath and looks over everything again. Holzman had been very clear that this would work only one time per room, and it's a small house. There can be no mistakes. The projector hums, clicks, and clatters as she flicks the switch to bring it to life. The stuttering black and white image of the same room in which she stands appears on the tattered white sheet she's hastily tacked to the wall. Nothing happens at first. It's just an empty living room. At nine seconds in, a shadow appears in the corner of the scene. It's not much more than a smudge at first. She squints and wonders if that's all it is. She knows it wasn't in the room when she made the film yesterday, but she scrolls through a few reference shots she made with her phone before she started filming with the bulky old cine camera, just to be sure. The shadow isn't in those shots. She looks back at the projected image. It's hazy, indistinct. It looks more like a stain, really. She steps closer. It could even be a defect in the film stock due to its age, or due to an error she made when developing it. As she watches, it starts to grow, taking up more of the screen. She frowns, sure, the film is ruined. It definitely looks like a defect. Or is it not growing in size? but maybe moving closer? There's a flicker and a flash, a moment where the makeshift screen becomes a photo negative of itself, and then the shape isn't just projected on the makeshift screen, it's in the room with her. She stares and presses her right hand to her chest. She reminds herself that this is what she wanted. It's what she was hoping would happen. The shape moves toward her, gathering more substance from the shadows. Coming closer, Karen smiles and her eyes sting. She takes a step toward the figure. Her hand falls away from her chest and she begins to reach out toward it. Mom? There's a snapping sound, followed by a flutter and a thud behind her, and the heavy drapes fall to the floor bright sunlight fills the room. The shape is gone. No! Karen reaches out urgently, as if her questing hand can fix the phantom in place, but it's already departed. Her arm falls to her side, and her head droops. She sighs, frustrated, sad. The young woman stands this way for a moment, listening to the projector continue to clatter away before she finally reaches over and flicks the switch to turn it off. She looks at the now blank screen for a long time, thinking about the old man's words when she bought the projector from him. You must be very careful, he had said. Not even a little light gets in when you are projecting the image. If it does, 
It will scatter the entity. She looks at the other three reels of film on the table. Each one is in its metal canister, carefully labeled with the name of the room where she shot it. These were to be her insurance in case something like this happened. Now she's glad she has them. The old man charged her thousands of dollars more for each canister of film than he had for the camera. And at first, she wasn't going to buy more than one. Trust me, he had warned her. You'll want them all. I wasted four of the original nine when I used it. You won't get a full manifestation on your first attempt. I can assure you of that. In the end, she bought all four he had along with the camera and projector. Now she's disappointed she has so few. She looks at the heavy projector and grunts. She can feel her back muscles twinge at the thought of having to pick the damn thing up again. Fuck it. Despite what the old man had told her, she feels it's worth a try if it means not lugging that thing into another room. She rewinds the film, then makes her way to the window and examines the curtain rod and drapes. She catches her own ghostly image in the glass as she approaches and stops mid-stride. She gasps when she sees it's not her own face staring back, but her mother's. It takes a moment, but she realizes this isn't the case. It is her reflection after all, but she looks amazingly like her. Karen's the same age her mother had been when she was killed. Not killed. The word is too sterile. Murdered. When she was murdered. Karen reaches out to her own reflection and touches fingertips with it. Tears blur her vision and the distortion makes her see her mother instead of herself. You're going to tell me, Mom. You're going to tell me, and I'm going to listen. Only you know the truth about that night. She wipes the tears away with the back of her hand and stares out the window for a moment. The yard and the garden are overgrown. The oaks and maples are taller, too. But she can still remember how it used to look. A pang of nostalgia grips her as the tattered memories of early childhood come back in quick flashes. She'd forgotten how different things were here in the Pennsylvania mountains from the dry, arid brown of Arizona, where she grew up afterwards. She looks out into the woods at the ferns blanketing the ground. The ferns were always the first sign that spring was coming grudgingly out of winter. The way their odd-looking fiddleheads would start to curl up through the last of the snow. Then came the tapping of the maples as the day got warmer, and the annual trip into Myersdale for the Maple Festival. She was only six the last time they went, but she still remembers the pancake and sausage breakfast at the community center. Karen wonders how different she might be if she had grown up here instead of on the ranch. She sighs and turns her attention back to the rod and drapes. The left end of the rod still rests against the bracket while the right end touches the ground. Its tip is embedded in the thick, dirty green shag carpet on the floor and the bracket rests next to it. She looks up and examines the wall, stands on the tips of her toes and leans in. She sees where the plaster gave way and the screws holding the bracket to the wall popped out. 
She drops back to her feet and chastises herself for pulling so hard on the drapes. She drops to her knees and looks for the screws. After five minutes of searching, she gives up. Even if she can find them in the thick shag, the holes are stripped out. They can't hold the weight of the rod and drapes any longer. She pulls the other bracket from the wall, relishing the little jab of pleasure the destructive act gives her, and tosses it across the room. She immediately feels silly for her tantrum, but shrugs it off. There are other ways to fix this problem, and she's going to do that. She retrieves the hammer and nails she's brought along to tack up her movie screens. Thick cotton sheets she's pulled from her linen closet and nails the old drapes directly to the wall above the window. Even better, I should have just done that to start with. With the room once again cast into darkness, she returns to the projector and switches it on again. She watches, counting off the seconds, but nothing appears. She waits and watches. Her fingers find the locket at her neck and she toys with it waiting for the shape to appear. It doesn't. And while she's frustrated, she realizes what this means. It wasn't a defect she saw the first time. It was something more. She jumps when the length of the film reaches the end and begins slapping against the machine. She turns off the projector and begins to gather up her equipment. There isn't much, but she's petite, so carrying it all is awkward. It takes a few trips to get it all moved. Finally, she returns for the projector, being extra careful not to drop it. Despite her precautions, somehow, the cord works its way loose and she steps on it. A gasp escapes her and the world slows down as she's sure she's going down. Somehow, she manages to catch herself against the narrow doorway between the small living room and the even smaller kitchen without losing her grip on the projector. She slides down and rests for a moment. She's trembling all over and afraid to stand up right away, so she waits. She looks around the tiny kitchen where so many meals were served when she was little. The fact that she can remember so few of those meals is sad and frustrating, but she remembers enough to know how poor they were and how much her mother loved her. The windows here have no coverings of any sort. It's bright, and the once cheery wallpaper depicting butterflies, ladybugs, and assorted flowers and fruits is faded and worn. In many places, it curls from the walls. The red and white checkered linoleum is cracked and stained. She averts her eyes from one of the stains. Her eyes sting, and it brings back a steadiness to her nerves. She clamps her teeth together and clutches the projector close to her chest. She stands as carefully as she can, pushing up against the doorframe, feeling her sweater glide against the smooth wood as she rises to her feet. She carries the projector and sets it on the old Formica table. She rests her hand on the table for a moment, tracing the faded patterns left by hands, elbows, and many cleanings. She remembers it. 
she's actually a little surprised to find it's still as sturdy as it is. She wouldn't want to stand on it, but it seems more than sturdy enough to support the projector. She finds the right canister and loads it properly, then turns her attention to two pieces of old cardboard which sit in the corner and a roll of bright red duct tape nearby. The cardboard sheets were originally a single three-foot by six-foot sheet, but she had cut it in half, making the resulting pieces just large enough to cover the room's two windows. She tapes them up and finds herself again in full darkness. She makes her way back to the table with the aid of her phone screen and flips the switch. This time, she doesn't have to wait long at all. The shape jumps from the screen almost as soon as the light hits it and it begins to fill in, becoming three-dimensional. It stretches its arms out to the ceiling as if waking from a long nap, then turns to face her. Karen's not sure how she knows it's looking at her. It's just a featureless gathering of blackness, but she feels the entity's eyes on her knows she's being watched. It's me, Mom. It's Karen, she tells the shade. The figure tilts its head and leans forward. It seems to be changing. Originally, she could see the light bouncing off the screen through the figure. Now it blocks out the light as it moves closer to her. Colors swirl on the surface of the specter's body, A patch of green here, blue there, and a growing patch of pink that is spreading along its face. Karen suppresses a sob as she realizes she's seeing its lips begin to form. She hears it take in a long, stuttering breath, and now she knows it's looking at her because she can see the pale blue of the ghost's eyes begin to manifest. At first, she thinks the creaking sigh is the voice of the spirit trying to say its first word, but the creak is followed by the sound of metal snapping, and a table leg skids across the floor. Karen turns and lunges for the projector, managing to catch it as a second leg breaks so violently it bounces off the floor and flies across the room. The leg punctures the cardboard covering one of the windows and shatters the glass beyond. Light streams in and scatters the entity once again. Karen's head bows, and she somehow manages to hold on to the projector. Two more reels. Two more chances to learn the truth. Karen sits on the floor, drinking a warm soda in the dark. This room was her mother's. She's torn by her desire to learn the truth and speak to her mother, and the overwhelming desire to flee this place. She takes another sip of the warm fluid, and it fizzes against her tongue. She's read the police reports so many times. She's no longer sure what is memory and what is her mind filling in the gaps. The woman was stabbed a total of nine times in her bedroom. Karen recites from memory. Three of the nine wounds occurred at the doorway between her room and the child's, which is likely where the woman first encountered and confronted the intruder. In her mind's eye, she sees her mother in the moonlight, 
pushing a dark figure into the door between the living room and their tandem bedrooms. The woman was stabbed six more times as she struggled with her attacker and fell to the floor. The suspect left her where she fell and returned to the child's room. Six-year-old Karen sees the figure looming in the doorway. Something familiar about his smell and the way he moves. He stands there for a long time. Something black and shiny drips from his hand into the patch of moonlight. She isn't afraid, but she knows she should be. She hears his breathing as he moves from the doorway into her room. She hears the familiar creak just beyond the foot of her bed as he steps closer. She feels his weight as he sits on the foot of her bed. He reaches out and rests his hand on little Karen's forehead, almost like Mama does when she checks her for a fever. But unlike Mama's hand, which is cool and dry, his hand is warm and sticky, wet. Something black drips down onto her nose. Another drop hits her cheek and rolls down her face. She feels it fall onto the sheet. He tilts his head to one side and lifts his other hand up. It's very shiny, whatever it is he has in that hand. That's when the loud crash comes from the kitchen. Metal and glass smash against the floor and the dark man runs to see. Karen looks at the drop on her sheet and in the soft glow from her nightlight, it looks almost red instead of black. She touches it with the tip of her finger. The victim managed to crawl through the living room and into the kitchen, Karen says after taking another sip of the vile soda. She had a small revolver hidden in a drawer, which she discharged at the suspect twice before succumbing to her wounds. The injured suspect fled the scene and remains at large. Six-year-old Karen hears something loud, like firecrackers, then sees the man run back into her room. He takes a few steps toward her, and this time she sees the knife in his hand the edge sparkling in the light from the moon. She pulls her sheets and covers over her head. She waits under the covers, shivering despite how warm she is. After a time, she hears sirens, gravel, and car doors. When she dares to peek out, the man and his knife are gone, and the room dances with blue and red lights. Without rising, Karen tosses the empty soda can into the darkness, reaches up and flicks the switch on the projector, which rests on a nightstand. It's angled toward the far wall. Something in the way it moves reminds her of that dark figure in her room all those years ago, and she fights back a shiver. She thinks about the way it tilted its head at her earlier. No, that's silly. The man got away. The only spirit trapped in these walls is her mother. Her mother who bled out on the kitchen floor trying to protect her. Her mother who couldn't move on until the man who murdered her was brought to justice. Karen rises and moves toward the figure, arms open wide, ready to embrace the woman who gave her life for her. 
this time, there's no way it can be called an accident. The projector flies across the room and smashes against the wall. The room is cast into darkness. Before she can cry out, she hears the footsteps. Now that it's manifest, the projector isn't needed, just the darkness. She feels a hand find her shoulder in the dark, and she smiles. Mom, I'm here. So am I, her mother says. A burst of light blazes out and scatters every trace of darkness from the room. The flash is so bright it nearly blinds her, but the afterimage of her mother's face lingers when the darkness returns to the room. The projector is in bad shape. Not only is the lens cracked, but the metal is dented and several pieces lay scattered about on the floor. The room is bathed in the golden light of the late afternoon sun as the Pennsylvania mountains reach up to pull it down for its nightly slumber. Karen hears the sound of the car coming down the gravel drive. She glances out the window and watches the distinctive tan and blue of the Fort Hill police chief's old jeep kicking up dust behind it. She turns from the window and continues gathering up pieces of the broken projector and placing them into the large box. She hears the screen door slam and heavy footsteps as Gary Caldwell, the Fort Hill police chief, enters. I heard you were back, he says instead of offering a greeting. Heard you bought this place. Guess I figured you'd come back someday even if I hoped you wouldn't. She scowls at the man and fights down the urge to slap him in the face. If you'd done your job back then, she says with a deceptive calmness, maybe I wouldn't have had to come back. He licks his lips, takes off his sunglasses, and slips them into his shirt pocket. He looks at her, but doesn't respond. Karen crosses her arms and tilts her head to the side. Nothing, she says, squinting her eyes. Neck turning crimson. I did my job. Oh, and that's why my mother's murderer was never found, right? Because you did your job? His lips tighten. I've seen the files, you know, she says. You and your Barney Fife didn't do much more than go through the motions. We're a small town. You know that. We did what we could. We did what we needed to. Yes, and the files are all very neat. You brushed it under the rug very nicely. No one can say you didn't follow procedure. Girl, all you need to know is that your mother protected you from a very bad man. And we did the same. Oh, because you sent me away? Because you pulled the strings to get me adopted by a wealthy family and my name changed? Because you tried to make this all go away? He shrugs. We did what we thought was right. You haven't had a bad life. Pretty successful. You've done well for yourself. Well enough to hire good people. Well enough to find out the truth about the way you hit things. The more I dug, the more evil I found. Evil? Girl, you haven't seen true evil. What we did wasn't evil. He turns his back to her and walks to the window, looking out into the woods. I had a friend in the witness protection program, and he got you out of here. 
You were only six. A little girl shouldn't have to grow up knowing such things. You stayed here. You would have been that little girl whose mama got murdered. We thought you deserved better than that. That bastard already took your mama from you. We didn't want him taking your future too. She's silent for a long moment. She chews her lip, wondering if she's misjudged the man. You didn't catch him. Karen's voice is softer now. Chief Caldwell's back stiffens, but he doesn't respond. Nearly a minute passes. He turns to face her and looks at her, his eyes searching hers. That's why we were able to get you in the program. It's how Dale was able to make it work. You needed a new name, a new life. Her anger returns. Yeah, I've seen the paperwork. I needed to be protected from a violent criminal who was currently at large and might have reasons to try to locate me. You're saying you didn't try to find him because you wanted me to have a better future? So you could manipulate the system to be sure I wouldn't be the little girl whose mama got murdered? That's the biggest crock I've ever heard. You can get the hell out of my house. Caldwell holds up both hands. Now take it easy. That's not what I said at all. He looks around at the equipment and his eyes narrow. What are you doing here anyway, Ren? Don't you call me that! You don't ever get to call me that! She's on the verge of tears. You lost the right to call me that when you decided the truth didn't matter. When you stopped trying to find the man who took my mother away. All right, Karen. His tone changes and he sounds like a police officer now. My question stands. What are you doing here? I'm looking for the truth. I'm looking for my mother. Don't mess around here, Karen. Your mama's moved on, and this is a dark place. Bad things happened here, he says, looking directly into her eyes. The directness of that gaze sends a shiver through her, and she feels the skin on her arms change to goose flesh. If you stir something up here, it's not going to be something you want to deal with, and it's not going to be your mama. She's a bit surprised at his words. Surprised that he seems to understand what she's trying to do, and more surprised that he doesn't think it's crazy. Well, you needn't worry. The projector's broken, and I can't do anything more here without it. I was actually about to leave when you showed up, so I think I'll do that now. She turns from him and grabs the projector, then storms out of the house. The chief sees the box with the film canisters and other items and picks it up. He carries the box out to her and hands it over. She takes it without looking at him and sets it in the trunk next to the projector, then closes the lid. It was good to see you again, he tells her. I hope you can leave this behind you. All we ever wanted was for you to have a good life. It's what your mama would have wanted too. Karen climbs in her car. If you say, give you a better life one more time, I think I'll scream. She slams the door, then drives off, trailing a cloud of dust behind her. Caldwell watches her drive off, then turns back to the house. 
The sun is going down by the time he steps inside the small structure. He walks through the larger bedroom and into Karen's room. It's smaller than he remembers. The carpet is dry and faded. He moves to the corner, nearest the window, and pulls up the carpet until a trap door is revealed. He opens it and descends into the darkness below. When he reaches the bottom of the small ladder, he pulls the heavy flashlight from his belt, finds the spot in the corner where the stain is, and unzips his fly. Hey, Jack, he says, and begins to urinate. He's silent while he does this, thinking back to the night he and his men found him down here. It was the moaning that gave him away. They found him gripping his side, trying in vain to stop the blood coming out of his wounds. Jack Rabbit Johnson didn't have much fight left in him, but they made him pay anyway. You leave that girl alone, you sorry sack of shit. She's stubborn like her mama so I know she'll be back. He zips up. I swear to Jesus, if you do anything to her, it's going to make what we did to you that night you killed her mama look like a day at the park. Don't think because you're dead we can't find ways to hurt you. As the chief leaves, he's watched by the last spirit trapped inside the walls of that sad little house. And he's lonely again. Karen passes through Myersdale and gazes off at the windmills in the distance. The road follows the Castleman River for a while, but she reaches the fork and heads away from it. A little less than 30 minutes later, she starts down a long dirt road. She wraps her right hand around the projector in the passenger seat next to her, bracing it as she drives along the bumpy road and dodging as many potholes as she can. The old man assured her the damage had been repaired, but with the price he charged to fix it, she's taking no chances. No one makes parts for these anymore, he had told her. You have to be careful with it. She turns into the driveway, and it's there waiting for her. She can feel it. This time, she'll succeed. She has to. She's even more glad she filmed the last reel in her secret spot the one she found at the end of the hidden tunnel from the garden. She had thought it was just a childhood fantasy at first. The secret passage, the hidden room, the secret hatch up into her bedroom. It all sounded like something out of a storybook or fairy tale. But when she peeled back the rug under the window, the door was there. The room was smaller than she remembered, and she thought the floor had been dirt, not concrete. But she also had vague memories of having magic tea down there with her imaginary friend, Mr. Rabbit, who had insisted on calling her Alice, of course. The good news, though, is that it's very dark down there. When she had made the decision to film down there last month, it had required a trip to the local hardware store for two halogen work light stands to make it bright enough. Now, she's not worried about light. She wants it dark. The basement will be the perfect place. With the trap door closed, not even a little light gets in. (laughs) 
where do you think you're going? There's more story to come. <laughs> Don't you want us to keep the lights on? <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Nelson from the Wicked Library, and I wanted to talk to you real quick about Warby Parker. These guys are fantastic. These are the try-em-out-at-home guys on the interwebs. Yeah, right, warbyparker.com. You might have seen a commercial for them. You might have heard me talk about them. You also might have seen me walking around in my cool Warby Parker shades. I actually had somebody stop me and saying, hey, I have the same Warby Parkers, and we had a little moment there on the street. It was very cool. Go to warbyparker.com slash wicked and check it out. You can go shopping for new frames. You can get them for sunglasses or regular prescription glasses. They're fantastic. Prescriptions that you have, as long as they're current, you send them in. Pick out the frames first, though. Go to the website, pick out five frames. They will ship them to you. You'll have them in like a day or two. Pick out the ones you like, send them back. If you've got an iPhone X... You can download the Warby Parker app and you can check out their virtual try-on. You don't even have to wait for them to send it to you. You can do it right now or you can fax your prescription in. You can email your prescription in and they will kick your glasses out and send them to you. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. And lenses all include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. They even have the blue light filtering lenses. Those things are awesome. It's just a wonderful experience. They were nice people. I had a call customer service on the phone. They were really wonderful, really helpful. And I love my glasses. They look so cool. And, you know, this is coming from the librarian. Cue librarian voice. And I know that I look fantastic. <laughs> Go to warbyparker.com slash wicked. Additionally, one thing that I really like, for every pair of glasses that they sell... Warby Parker distributes a pair to someone who needs them. That's fantastic. That's paying it forward. And I'm really, really into that. So check them out. Go to warbyparker.com slash wicked. Let me know how you do. And hey, tell them the librarian sent you. Next up, we bring you a story by our 2017 Parsec Award winner for her story, Shadows, KB Goddard, with her story, 13, as told by Graham Rowett. And scored by Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. It was a warm day in early September when Mr. Tate found himself in front of the curiosity shop on the corner of Water Street. It was a new addition. The premises had stood empty the last time he had passed that way, not so long ago, and this shop had sprung up like a stray seed in bare earth. He browsed the wares displayed in the window with casual interest. A strange-looking chalice adorned with twisted, almost writhing serpents, a glass fruit bowl, and a few indifferent porcelain ornaments. Grotesque, crouching, carved wooden figures stood sentinel at either side of the window, seemingly more calculated to frighten away potential customers than entice them in. He leant closer to the window, bringing up his hand to block the sunlight, which was glaring on the well-polished glass on a table just beyond the window, he could see what appeared to be a mezzotint. As he was something of a collector of prints, he thought it might just be worth his trouble to step inside. He had no pressing engagements, and his time was his own. He drew out his watch and consulted it. It was a little after one o'clock. Yes, he would stop in for a few minutes and go on to lunch afterwards. He pushed open the door. A small bell chimed overhead as he entered. 
Barely had he taken stock of his surroundings when he turned and saw, standing at his elbow, a man, presumably the proprietor. Tate's eyebrows crept gradually up his face. Odd. The man had not been there a moment before, he was sure. Where on earth had he come from? It was as if he had materialized from the ether at the sound of the bell. He was a short man, with grey hair and a starkly contrasting dark beard, giving the curious impression of both youth and age bound up in one person. "'Good afternoon, sir,' said the man. "'May I be of any assistance?' "'Oh, thank you,' replied Tate. "'Really, I was just passing when I noticed the mezzotint over there.' "'Ah, yes, sir has a good eye,' said the man, picking up the print and presenting it to Tate. "'The moonlight is remarkably captured, is it not?' "'Yes, indeed, admirably, sir.' "'Sir is perhaps a connoisseur?' "'Oh, no, I would not say so.' But I am a collector of sorts. When I see a piece I really like, that is. He let his eyes stray around the room. You certainly do have some unusual pieces. Oh, yes, indeed. Most unusual. Yes, I shall take the mezzotint, said he after a moment's contemplation, which was not without a discreet eye to the price. But I'll just take a look at your other wares first. By all means, please do. I shall wrap this for you. He took the print from Tate and withdrew. While the proprietor was busy at the counter, Tate examined the closely packed shelves and tables. Books, prints, maps, trunks, jewellery cases, suits of armour, all captured and brought together to form this intriguing menagerie of curios. So absorbed was he in his occupation that he almost bumped into a figure standing in a corner by one of the bookcases. He was on the point of apologizing for his inattention when he realized that the figure was not another customer, as he had supposed, but a life-sized wooden carving of what he at first took to be a monk or friar. Only when he saw, protruding from beneath the carved robes of the figure, a pair of hideously taloned and withered claws, did he rethink this. It seemed to him that some of the shop's contents were not merely curios, but also rather macabre. He passed the figure and turned his attention to the bookcase. Amongst the rare editions and dry tomes, he found little to pique his interest. However, one volume did attract his attention, a compendium of superstitions. He smiled to himself and thumbed the pages with interest. After giving the rest of the bookcase a cursory glance, he carried the compendium to the counter where the owner was waiting for him. I shall take this too, said Tate, as he placed the book beside the brown paper parcel containing the mezzotint. Very good, sir replied the proprietor. He cast an eye over the title of the volume. An interesting subject, said he. Yes, from an academic perspective, certainly. You are not yourself a believer, then, sir? By no means. Very wise, very wise. Some people are so very credulous when it comes to matters of superstition, or, dare I say, the supernatural. Do you know, I have had customers reject perfectly lovely items because they hold that emeralds are unlucky for them, or they could not risk even a painting of a peacock feather in their home. He sighed and shook his head with an air of resignation. I can assure you, such a thing would not bother me in the least, said Tate with dignity. Really? Well, I do wonder. You might be the very customer I've been looking for. Oh? Do forgive my presumption, but I have, at present, a book which is a little out of the ordinary. That is, after all, my business. This book, however, has a singular reputation. You have my ear, sir. 
It is a book of magic, said the owner in hushed tones. Oh? It was suggested to me when I obtained it that the book itself is cursed. That is nonsense, of course. I've had the book for some time, and I am no worse for it. He gave a thin smile, which to Tate seemed almost sly. Yes, indeed, replied Tate. Utter nonsense, of course. Quite, but it does, you see, make this book a difficult item for which to find a buyer. People are inclined to feel that it may be an unlucky thing to have, or even that it may be in some way... evil. The man's eyebrows gave a momentary twitch. I assure you such considerations mean nothing to me. Would you like to see it? Indeed I would. The man reached beneath the desk and produced the book with a swift movement. He looked keenly at Tate as the latter examined the book. Written on the flyleaf was the following. Zero. What the significance of the digit was, Tate could not see. After a short perusal of the volume, he looked up at the man, who was still watching him narrowly. What remarkably dark eyes he had, almost black. Then he asked the vital question, How much? Only later, when he was at lunch, did it occur to Tate that he had neglected to inquire how the proprietor of the curiosity shop had come by the book. But that could matter little. Already, an idea of how to put the book to use was forming in his mind. He would make use of it that very night. It was the 13th of the month, and that meant the meeting of the Thirteen Club. Inspired by those clubs established in New York and London, Tate and twelve of his like-minded companions had together formed their own Thirteen Club. Their aim was to strike a blow for rationality and to debunk superstition. These thirteen men met upon the thirteenth of each month. Each member was required to enter the dining room by passing beneath a ladder, spill salt, no portion of which was permitted to be thrown over the shoulder, break a mirror, and, after the meal, to place the cutlery crossed upon the plate. Peacock feathers adorned the dining room at every meeting. When he left for that evening's meeting of the club, Tate took along the book. When the meal was over, and the time to discuss the business of the club had arrived, he called for it to be brought in. When a waiter had deposited the book before him and withdrawn, Tate stood up. "'Gentlemen,' he said, addressing himself to twelve curious faces, it has been our mission since the founding of our club to shine a light into those dark corners where ignorance and superstition still held sway over sense and logic. So far we have confined our activities to those trifling and commonplace superstitions which are most prevalent. Tonight I propose that we take our efforts a step further. What do you have in mind? asked Mr. Norton, another of the thirteen. It is my idea that we should next tackle the concept of curses. That is, the idea that one man may, by magical or spiritual means, willfully bring mischief to another without the aid of any material methods. A murmur went around the table. How do you propose to do that? asked another member. By casting one of these so-called curses myself. One or two of the company began to fidget uneasily in their chairs. Others leant forward with interest. Gentlemen, continued Tate, I have here a volume filled with writings purporting to exercise such powers, a book of spells, or a grimoire, if you will. Another low murmur made its way around the table. He passed the book to his neighbor. Please, examine the book for yourselves. Tell me, was there ever such an affront to rationality and good sense? The book made its way around the table from one to the other of the company, each member in turn leafing through the pages. 
Some smirked with evident derision, others wore dark expressions, and, after a cursory glance, thrust the volume at their neighbor with an air of disgust. Well, gentlemen, what do you say? Deplorable, cried one. I'm with you. I am not certain, Tate. I do not believe what you propose is within our remit, said another, a man named Caxton. I'm inclined to agree, said Norton. I'll be frank, Tate. I don't like it. Come, Norton, what is your objection? Well, for one thing, this smacks more of theology than of superstition. Some may regard the two as one and the same, but I am not among their number. Precisely, Norton, said Caxton. There is, continued Norton, a marked difference between such superstitions as claim some innocuous action, such as breaking a mirror can attract bad luck, and the willful and deliberate dabbling in the dark arts. This last statement was met with several cries of assent. Gentlemen, said Tate, drawing himself upright, his hands grasping his lapels, I am surprised to hear you talk so. Is this not the 19th century? Are we not men of reason? Men of reason we are, said Caxton. But men of faith we are also. Some of us, at any rate, said he, nodding in polite acknowledgement to one of his neighbors. Not every man of reason finds religion to be incompatible with a rational worldview. He was frowning so deeply now that his copious grey eyebrows were in danger of meeting his moustache. Perhaps no harm will be done, said Norton, spreading his hands out upon the table and leaning forward. But I believe no good will come of it either. I do not believe this will profit our cause, and you may be running a risk. Can you really justify making such an experiment upon another person? He asked looking Tate fixedly in the eye. I shall volunteer to be the object of the curse, if that will help. I have no fear of such things, said Mr. Lester. No, no, Lester. I should not dream of asking anyone else to be the object of my experiment. It is my proposal that I should cast this curse upon myself. There now, Norton. Caxton, will that satisfy you? I say again, Tate, I don't like it, stated Norton. Nor do I, said Caxton. The conversation went back and forth in this manner for some minutes more. Eventually, the tide of opinion flowing largely in Tate's favor, Norton, Caxton, and their like-minded brethren had no choice but to acquiesce. I shall not undertake to recreate here the incantations and rituals performed by Tate. The dissenters, who had agreed to remain, unwillingly, as witnesses, watched with a mixture of some curiosity and not a little apprehension. Shortly thereafter, the meeting was adjourned, and the members took their leave. Tate strolled home that night with an improved opinion of himself. To a practical nature such as his, all superstitious thought was abhorrent. Humanity, he reasoned, could never reach its full potential while it still adhered with childlike devotion to such archaic ideas. It was up to rational men like him to set an example to society. He was surprised to find so much resistance among his fellow club members, however. But they would soon see that he was right. When he turned in at his gate, his attention was caught by something on his front door. As he came closer, he saw that it was a sheet of black-edged morning notepaper pinned to the door panel. The only writing on the sheet was scrawled in the center. It read, 13. He frowned. If this was a jest, it was in poor taste. He could only assume that one of his fellow club members had overtaken him and left this note in protest at his actions. He would have strong words for the culprit at the next meeting. He tore down the note and let himself into the house, slamming the door behind him. His good mood was momentarily tarnished by this tomfoolery. 
He was soon in his usual spirits again, however, and went to bed pleased with his evening's work. When he arose in the morning, he did not feel as refreshed by his night's rest as he might have hoped. In truth, he had had little rest. The night had been a close one, hot and airless. More than once he had woken, stifled by the heat. Indeed, he must have been very restless, for that morning he had woken up to find he had so disarranged his bedclothes in the night that his sheets had become a twisted mass, which had somehow contrived to wrap themselves about his face and neck. He woke with the sensation that he was choking and had to disentangle himself from his rebellious bed linen. To an outside observer, it would have looked almost as if he were doing battle with some twisted and contorted serpent. When he looked at the discarded sheets as they lay on the bedroom floor, he noticed that they had fallen in such a way as to draw out the number twelve. The days that followed were little better. To the discomfort caused him by the heat was added the curious sensation that he was being watched. The feeling was most acute when he was alone. It must, he knew, be no more than a symptom of his fatigue, and at first he was inclined to shrug it off. But after the passage of a few days, he was starting to become quite nervous, yet he was still inclined to blame his own senses for the phenomenon. There was something else, however, which had struck him as odd and less easily explained. Each day he had noticed a number, quite clearly depicted in some everyday object or substance. First there had been the note on the door, then the incident with the bedsheet. Each day the number decreased. Yesterday he had spilt the sugar, and somehow it seemed to have fallen in the exact shape of a figure eight. Only today his tea leaves suggested the number seven to him. It was curious, to say the least. To begin with, he had been interested, assuming it to be a product of his imagination, suggested to him by the note on the night of the Thirteen Club meeting. As the apparent countdown continued, however, this stolid and intensely practical man was starting to feel distinctly uneasy. In the wake of the heat and humidity came storms. One evening, as Tate sat alone in his sitting room, a sudden darkening of the heavens foretold the approach of one such storm. Soon storm clouds shattered over the house, rain driving frantically against the roof and walls and pouring from the eaves to the dry, thirsting ground below. A deep roll of thunder echoed overhead as Tate rose to light the candles. He returned to his armchair and lighted the lamp on the table by his elbow. He picked up the book he'd been reading and resumed his place. The room darkened by degrees as the evening drew in until the only light left in the room came from the lamp and candles. Still, the storm raged on, but Tate did not stir, absorbed as he was in his book. A feeling of drowsiness began to weigh on him. He stretched himself out, looking up just as a white flash of lightning illuminated the room. A cold feeling engulfed him. He sat as motionless as a victim of the Gorgon. He was not alone. At the far end of the room was a corner that the light from the candles did not touch. Crouching in that black void, and visible only due to the lightning, was a squat, distorted figure, more beast than man, with a suggestion of coarse hair or fur covering its bony frame. A second flash revealed the hideous, outstretched claws. There could be no doubting his senses now. All instinct to rationalize his situation was stripped from him. Was this abomination, then, what had been watching him? Why had it revealed itself to him now? His fevered blood coursed through his veins like waves of burning ice. There came a low, guttural growl. A thousand times worse was the horror that seized him when he realized that the sound came not from the heavens, 
but from the fiend in the corner. With a sudden effort of will, he broke free of the mental fog which held him captive. He flung himself from his chair and bolted from the room. He flew wildly from the house, oblivious to the waves of rain that tried to beat him back. It was with considerable astonishment that Norton received his dripping and despondent guest. Once inside his friend's rooms, Tate fell prostrate upon the hearth rug. Norton thrust brandy between the lips of the stricken man, and soon colour began to return to his face. Still, it was some time before Norton could elicit an explanation either for Tate's condition or his conduct. But, by and by, all was told. I should have listened to you, said Tate. I should never have touched that wretched book. Despite the heat, Tate, now wrapped in towels and blankets, shivered before a newly lighted fire. Norton looked at him keenly. Such alteration in a man who was usually so dignified and confident, and perhaps just a little pompous, was a piteous sight. All pomposity was deflated. All he had believed in had been stripped from him, and now there remained only this shaking, fragile husk. What do you intend to do? Norton asked. I do not know. What can I do? I feel as though some evil influence is close upon me, yet I feel equally incapable of action. It is as though all such power were gone from me. Have you consulted the book? Tate blinked at him blankly. It was as though he did not fully comprehend his words. No, I have not. I have not touched the book since that night. It is odd, but I never thought of it. Odd indeed, said Norton thoughtfully. You must stay here tonight. I can furnish you with all you need. Tomorrow we will examine this book of yours. It seems to me that if it is indeed the cause of your suffering, then we may also look there for the means of counteracting it. Tate woke early in the morning after a fitful night's sleep. He stretched out his aching limbs, stiff and heavy as rusted iron. His mind felt just as unyielding. His ordeal was taking its toll. When hot water had been brought in, he stood before the washstand. Casting aside his borrowed nightgown, he poured out some of the steaming water and scooped handfuls over his careworn face and let it trickle down his neck and chest. As he washed off the bonds of sleep, he became conscious of a stinging pain. It was then that his gaze caught the mirror. A strangled cry escaped his throat. On his chest, carved into the bare flesh as though by claws, was the number two. Whatever was pursuing him, it was getting closer. They did not wait for breakfast, but went straight to Tate's house. They found the book in the study and leafed through the pages in search of an antidote. It took only an instant to realize that their efforts were in vain. Not only was there no spell of repeal, there was nothing. Not one word was written on any of the pages. All were blank. The book was empty. Tate sank down in his chair and dropped his head into his hands. What have I done? Dear God, what have I done? All is lost. I am damned. Take heart, man. All may yet be well. Perhaps after all, this will turn out to be nothing more than a cruel joke. Norton reassured him. He said it, and yet the words rang hollow in his heart as he did so. In that moment, as he looked at the worn-out figure of Tate, he felt as though he were looking upon a man on his way to the gallows. The next stop must, obviously, be the curiosity shop from which Tate had bought the book. Perhaps the proprietor would be able to aid them. But here, too, they were foiled. What they discovered will no doubt be unsurprising to the reader, there being many a tale of those similarly afflicted, and yet 
does the wealth of such stories not lend something to their credibility? I leave these considerations to the reader and state only that the shop stood empty once more. No trace was there left of either merchandise or proprietor. Inquiries at the letting agents revealed that no curiosity shop had, to their knowledge, ever occupied the premises. The shop had been to let for some weeks, and certainly had not been occupied on the 13th instant. What more was there to do? That day and the next were occupied in scavenging through bookshops, but to no avail. They could find no other copy of the curse, and no means by which to undo it. Examination of the compendium revealed that it, at least, was still intact. The compendium and other books they had consulted suggested that salt could be used to act as a barrier against evil forces. Having no better clue to go on, this then seemed their only hope. And so they made their preparations. The floor of Tate's study was cleared, and upon the boards they drew a good-sized circle of salt within which Tate was to sit. They lit as many lamps and candles as they could find to chase away the darkness and whatever may be hiding in it. They locked the doors and bolted and shuttered the windows. Theirs was a melancholy vigil. They waited, Tate sitting within the circle of salt, praying feverishly, Norton clutching a prayer book before him like a shield. Norton had tried to recruit a local clergyman to aid them, but he had been away on a visit when he had called, and no word had come in reply to the message he had left. It seemed that every circumstance conspired against them. Whatever was coming, they must face it alone. For long hours, as twilight dwindled into darkest night, all was still. Then, as the first stroke of midnight rang out, the wind rose up as if in answer, beating furiously against the window panes, seeking ingress. A loud bang told them that the gale had breached the front door, though they both knew that they had locked it. The next instant, the study door blew wide with tremendous force, flying back upon its hinges with a resounding crash. Every lamp and candle in the room was extinguished, save for a single hurricane lantern. Norton sprang forward and pushed against the door with all of his strength as the wind raged and tore through the room. Salt scattered before the onslaught. As the last stroke of midnight died away, the wind ceased upon the instant. The door yielded, slamming shut and sending Norton lurching forward. He called to Tate, but no answer came. He saw the recumbent figure upon the floor. Scrambling to his feet and taking up the lantern, he bent over his prostrate friend. One look was enough to tell him that the man was dead. Norton's eyes closed, and he drew a deep breath. Beside the dead man was gathered a pile of salt. Drawn in the salt was a single digit. Zero. Where do you think you're going? There's more stories here at the Wicked Library. Stick around or we'll turn the lights off for good. <laughs> Let's go for a ride. There are many stories here. Like this place. Like many things here, some have become lost. But all lost things yearn to be found, and all stories long to be told. I've searched through my building, gathering up stories from every floor, from the basement to the ninth story, and every floor in between. 
Stories of choice, of the hopeless, the redeemable, and the lost. Stories that will unlock something inside of you and carry you through fear to your future. Get your copy of the Lift's First Anthology on Amazon in print and Kindle. Let's go for a read. <laughs> Closing out the episode today, we bring you a story by a brand new author to the show, Corey Mason, with his story at the top of her lungs, as told by Heather Thomas and scored by Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. At the Top of Her Lungs by Corey Mason Narrated by Heather Thomas As far as cancer goes, the kind you get in your thyroid is probably the easiest to deal with, all things considered. It usually gets spotted early. The treatment is pretty straightforward. And if worse comes to worse, and they need to take it out, at least you're not losing something you need to live. That doesn't change the fact that I thought I was going to die. It started out pretty simple. With a sore throat and a little shortness of breath, I figured I just had a stubborn cold that I'd get over in a few days. But after a month, when it got to the point where I could barely catch my breath at all, I finally conceded and went to the doctor. He found the answer pretty quick, and the test results confirmed what he expected. There was a knot of abnormal tissue wrapped around the little butterfly-shaped gland at the base of my throat. A hard lump you could actually feel under my skin near my collarbone if you put your fingers in the right place. The cancer hadn't spread, thank God, but my thyroid was thoroughly invaded by those deadly cells. The cancer needed to be cut out, and it would be easier just to take the whole gland with it. The success rate for that kind of surgery was as close to a sure thing as you could get, and I was just thankful that I'd gotten off easier than most. But then I woke up from surgery. I couldn't breathe. My vision went blurry, dark around the edges. Something was wrong. Something was in my throat. I started to retch, but... The thing was in my mouth, jammed against the back of my throat and snaking down my windpipe. I reached for my mouth in panic. It was a tube. Why was there a tube going down my throat? I couldn't stop choking, my gag reflex triggered over and over by the obstruction. I needed to throw up, but I couldn't. Bile stewed at the bottom of my throat burning. I tried to rip the tube out of my mouth, but it was taped to my lips, strapped around my head like a gag. I pulled again. It wouldn't come free. My head spun. I retched again and again. Air. Breathe. 
The nurses grabbed me and held me down before I could pull a third time. I didn't have the strength to push them off. They pressed the tape back down over my mouth. They were killing me. One of them injected something into the IV in my arm. Dizziness spun my brain around. Spots swam in my eyes. I didn't want to die. Colors. Air. Sleepy. Breathe. When I woke again, the tube was gone. My throat was on fire, rubbed raw like I had swallowed a porcupine. But I could breathe, just barely. Every sip of air was a struggle, and every breath made an odd whistling sound as it left my mouth, but I could fill my lungs again. I tried to answer the doctor when he spoke to me, but something felt loose, like the breath wouldn't catch in my throat the right way to make words. Nothing but air came out of my mouth, and that haunting, rattling whistle, like the breath of a dying person. It was an extremely rare complication, the doctor said. The tumor had grown outward, too close to the recurrent laryngeal nerves, these two long, winding strands of fiber that controlled most of the muscles around my larynx, my throat. The surgeons did everything they could to minimize the damage, but in the process of removing the cancer, the nerves were severed. My throat had closed, and the surgeons had no choice but to perform an intubation. The tube jammed down my throat. I wasn't supposed to wake up for that part. That situation was disturbingly less surprising to the doctor. You don't want to know how often people wake up from anesthesia before they're supposed to, while they're still opened up on the operating table. The surgeons did everything they could for me. And at least I could breathe unassisted. But there was another complication. The nerves that were damaged weren't just responsible for the muscles in my throat. They also controlled my vocal cords. My voice. Aphonia, it's called. The doctor told me that with therapy, maybe surgery further down the line, it was at least some possibility of getting my voice back. But the thing that had scared me during pre-operation counseling, the one thing the doctors were so sure would never happen, had happened. My voice was gone, and a heavy possibility weighed on me that I would never be able to speak again. You never notice how much you use something until it's gone. It shouldn't be surprising that there's an app for that. But I hated text-to-speech. All the voices sounded so mechanical. So cold. They don't sound like my voice. I mostly just used a pen and notepad when I needed to talk. 
which I quickly started to avoid as much as possible. I hated my voice before, but now all I wanted to hear was a laugh at a funny TV show, a half-formed thought whispered out loud, a curse at a stubbed toe, anything. I never thought I would miss cursing so much. I didn't go out much anymore. What good were the bars if you couldn't talk to anyone? My friends tried to include me, but it was impossible to be heard when the chatter had already moved on by the time I scribbled out what I wanted to say. I think they were relieved when I stopped meeting them. Even grocery shopping was hard. People looked at me like I was such a bitch when I didn't return their pleasantries, and the workers acted so put off when I showed them my notepad instead of just telling them what I needed. After two weeks, I just wanted to scream in everyone's face. I just wanted to scream in general. At least it would be sound coming out of my own mouth. Something besides that stupid, whispery breath. Every exhale sounded like a death rattle. Like someone's last breath slipping out through cold lips. It didn't do much good for my sanity. My own breathing kept me awake at night. Rattling like a loose shudder. I was exhausted. If I had been asleep, I wouldn't have heard the echoing click of the back door deadbolt turning. I stared wide-eyed into the shadows. Did I actually hear that? Maybe it was just a dream. I was so tired. Anything was possible. The silence was crushed by the distinct grunt of wood sliding against wood and then the soft whine of the hinge I never got around to oiling. I climbed out of bed, as silently as possible, and crept to my bedroom door. I peeked around the frame and into the hallway. Everything was still, quiet, empty. A shadow moved across the end corridor. I recoiled back into my room, hand over my mouth, muffling my ragged, whistling breath. My heart screamed in my chest louder than my voice ever would again. I ran to the bedside table, snatched up my phone. The screen blinded me, splashing blue-white light across the dark walls as I swiped it open and dialed 911. It rang. It rang ring. Click. 911, what's your emergency? Hello? Hello, 911. Are you able to describe the nature of your emergency? A starburst spidered out from the back of my skull. The rectangle of light that was my phone spun off into the darkness. 
I didn't realize I was falling until my cheek smashed against the carpet. The light spun back into view, and then rose upward and behind me. And then there was darkness. I'm so sorry, ma'am. A low, smooth voice said, so calm, but so jarring in the silence. My toddler got a hold of my phone when I wasn't looking. She didn't know what she was doing. Yes, ma'am, I'm sorry. No, you don't need to send anyone out here. We're fine. Thank you. Goodbye. There was a faint beep as the call disconnected. A pair of boots came into view, and then a knee. And then my body was turned. My head lifted. A figure, silhouetted in the moonlight, diffused by the window blinds, stared down at me. Voiceless screams left my throat, nothing but heavy breaths rushing past dead cords. I swung my feet and my knees and my fists at the dark spot above me. My clawed hands found purchase on soft, relenting flesh. I tore with my fingernails, ripping grunts of pain from the shadow looming over me. My foot struck something soft, and the figure fell back into the dark with the hoof of escaping breath, still more full of sound than my own. I flailed my way to my feet, my arms uncoordinated, my legs wobbly. My head throbbed with every beat of my thundering heart, the loudest thing in the quiet house. I stumbled to the front door, unlatched it, and threw myself out onto the front lawn. I couldn't breathe. Something wet trickled down the back of my neck, and my eyes were bleary, even in the light of the moon and the yellow streetlight splashing across the street. Soundless screams wheezed from my throat as I hobbled toward the nearest house. The lights were all off. It was too late for anyone to be awake. But I saw a blue glow, a television in one of the windows. I ran, struggling to keep my feet under me as the world rocked under them. Tears stained my face, my chest strained to bursting. I screamed again, that whistling, raspy breath that no one could hear. I could see someone in the window now, his face illuminated by the TV screen. I reached for the window, almost there. A hand snatched me back by my hair, jolting my skull with another tidal wave of pain set on fire by the ripped follicles in my scalp. Thick, shadowy arms wrapped around my neck, my waist. I kicked, and I reached, and I screamed, and I cried, my fingers so close to the windowsill. The man in the window couldn't see me. There was no light, and he was too focused on his show. The shadow dragged me like a toy, no matter how hard I kicked, back onto my lawn, 
back up the front steps. My fingernails snapped on the doorframe as the shadow ripped me back inside. I screamed. No one heard. The door slammed shut. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes pages. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. Unless, of course, you're trying to manifest a spirit with a special movie projector. <laughs>